really is quite popular. It really is quite popular, and most of us would like to go on doing it, at least for the time being. But at the same time, we all want our lives to have meaning and to have purpose as we live those lives. No one really wants to live a purposeless life. We don't live in a purposeless universe. We live in a universe of, of order. Things happen for a reason. And there is a plan at work that is far greater than any one of us individually. But the neat part is we get to participate in the plan. God's mosaic includes you and me. Even though the plan is vast, it's incredible, so, so much more than any one of our minds could ever comprehend. We as individuals do get to play a part in that mosaic that God is putting together. It includes us all. God created human beings with free will. But at the same time, he exercises complete control over his creation. Now, that's a complex theological truth, is it not? Very difficult to comprehend, but it is the truth. The scriptures present the fact that the believer has the responsibility to love and obey God. That's the way the scriptures put it. We have a free choice, but that choice is a responsibility. And if it's a responsibility, then it at least, at the very least, implies we can say yes or we can say no. That responsibility. We do have free choice. If we don't have the ability to say yes or no to a command that God has given, then the commands that He gives gives become some sort of cosmic absurdity or cosmic farce. If it's just all some sort of game with a cosmic puppeteer up there pulling the strings, and what you think you decided to do, you really didn't decide to do, then it is uh, farcical in some way. And I see why people rightly reject that. But the truth is, the sovereignty of God does exist. The Bible does say that God has complete control over his creation. The free will of man and the sovereignty of God are both realities by divine design. Robert Zacharias wrote, There is no greater discovery than seeing God as the author of your destiny. And I agree with that. But we must not take that and then turn it in to some form of fatalism, because it's not. As a part of the process in the unfolding of this plan, God incorporates the free choices of his creation into the mix. Each of us has our own part to play in our own destiny. So I agree with Robbie that there's no greater discovery than seeing that God is the author of our destiny, but I also understand that each of us still has a part to play in the outworking of God's plan. We choose, for example, whether or not to trust Christ. Free choice. Some people choose to do it. Some people choose not to do it. Now, Paul writes that it's the will of God that all men be saved. Not just some, but all. And if it's the will of God that all men be saved and some are not saved, then God must allow a choice with regards to the plan. We choose whether or not, after we're saved, to study the Word of God and to learn more about Him, and so therefore to love Him more and be motivated to obey Him more. In that order, by the way, we learn about Him, we love Him, because we love Him, and then we obey Him. We choose whether or not we're going to become committed disciples of Jesus Christ. That's a choice that you make, and, the, and our Lord presented that choice in the Gospels over and over and over again, particularly the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This choice that we have to make to, to decide whether I'm going to be a committed disciple of Jesus Christ, whether I'm going to sell out for him, or whether I'm going to hold something back for myself. We choose whether or not 
we will say yes or no to the opportunities that we've been given in life. Just because we've been given an opportunity doesn't mean we're going to say yes to it. We choose what we're going to do with the time that we've been given. There are a lot of choices that we have to make. In this chapter, Esther is presented with a choice. A choice to say yes and fulfill a destiny that God had designed for her, or to say no and leave that destiny unfulfilled. The task won't be unfulfilled. The tension is, is Esther going to say yes and thus fulfill the destiny that God has for her, or is she going to say no to the destiny that God has for her? God's not going to force it upon her. I'm so happy that she said yes. See, for all of eternity, we'll be talking about Esther, what she did. Either way, whether Esther says yes or no in this chapter, either way, God's going to be glorified. And either way, his plan is going to be fulfilled. So the yeses or noes of human beings say a lot about what life is going to be like for us. But it says nothing about whether God's plan is ultimately going to be fulfilled. It's in our best interest to say yes to God. And it's not like God doesn't care one way or another. I don't want to present him in that way at all. He does care, and he cares deeply because he has the highest and best in mind for each one of us, just like we do for our children or for our grandchildren. We want our children to say yes and obey God because we know we know what that's going to do for them if they will. And if we want them to say yes to God, don't you think God wants it even more for all of us? He wants us to say yes to his plan. But if we say no, it's not going to ruin his day, and it's not going to thwart his plan. His plan is going to go on even in spite of our no. There are a lot of people that have said no to the gospel. It doesn't mean the gospel is a failure or that the work of Christ on the cross was incomplete. It was complete, and it is a success. We may choose not to participate in that success. But that's up to us. And Esther's going to have one of these kind of choices. She's going to have to choose whether to say yes to the destiny that God has designed for her or to say no to that destiny. This is not to imply, and I don't mean in any way, particularly with regard to the choices that we make, it doesn't imply that it's an easy choice. In fact, Esther has a very hard choice to make. Decisions of significance are seldom that easy. I'm sure Esther would have preferred to live her life out as the queen of Persia, the spouse of one of the most powerful men on earth in luxury, in anonymity, without any of this coming into her purview. But that's not what God had as a plan for her. She had to choose what she was going to do with the opportunity that God put in front of her. She had to choose what she was going to do with the time that God gave her. She had no part at all in deciding whether she was going to be the one to make that choice. Remember, we saw providentially God just kind of picked her up and moved her into that position. So she didn't have to make a lot of choices there. But now that she's in that position, God's placed her with this choice, with this dilemma, if you will. And there's a lot riding on it for her personally. The text would indicate there's a lot riding on it for the Jews. But we're going to also see that if she doesn't do it, God's going to do it a different way. It's going to get done. It's just whether or not we participate in the process. That neighbor that you've been wanting to witness to, it's going to get done if God wants a witness to it. But our privilege would be to participate in that process. I hope you're following me. Now, one more point of introduction. In our passage today, as elsewhere in the book, Esther and Mordecai 
are both seen as great patriots in Israel. And this is an important point. They are both seen as great patriots on behalf of the Jewish people. But they are not, either Mordecai or Esther, neither one of them is presented as being a particularly righteous person or a particularly mature person in the faith. Like, for example, other people in the Old Testament who fully trusted in the Lord. There is no, the battle is the Lord in Esther. We don't see that. Now, this is a, I'm not trying to take away Esther as a hero, but you're, you're going to miss the whole point of the book of Esther if we get so focused upon her as this spiritual giant, or even Mordecai as a spiritual giant. Contrary to popular opinion in some current publications, Esther is not a spiritual giant. Esther is a hero, and she makes the right choice. And perhaps she became one as time went on. But Esther is more of a patriot here than she is a spiritual giant. And that makes sense because we, we remember in Esther, in the book of Esther, God is demonstrating how he is providentially taking care of his people even when they're in the exile. We saw in the introduction to Esther that both Mordecai and Esther were probably in a place that they weren't supposed to be. Deuteronomy, Isaiah, Jeremiah had all, had, all have passages indicating that once they were there, they needed to go back into the land. Now, please, I'm not trying to step on anybody's toes who's written on the, the great people of the faith, and, and Esther's one of them. She is not when you compare her to other great people of the faith. There is nothing in here about her saying, the Lord wants me to do this. After I prayed for three days, now she'll fast, and maybe that's something similar. But she never says something like, the battle is the Lord. That's not the point of Esther. The point of Esther is not so much Esther. It's God providentially working things out, even for people who aren't, aren't where they are supposed to be at that particular time. And that goes for Mordecai, too. So I don't want to take Esther away from you as a hero. She is a great hero. She's a great hero of the Jewish people. But at least at this point in her life, she's not necessarily a great hero of the faith. Esther chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Then, as you remember, by the way, what's happened. Mordecai has found out about what has happened as a, as a result of him just completely insulting Haman. There's this decree that's going to, that has gone out that every Jew everywhere are all going to be slaughtered. Everybody that's in the Persian Empire, every Jew in the Persian Empire is going to be wiped out, and that's an incredibly large area, which includes Jerusalem. 10,000 talents are set aside for this activity, heinous activity. And it's going to take place approximately a year after the decree is mentioned. So Mordecai finds out. He realizes that his people are in trouble because of something that he did. He probably feels enormously bad about that. He feels terrible that his people are going to be destroyed. And he does some things that they did in the ancient world. In verse 1, he, when he learned that all had been done, he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes, went out into the midst of the city, and wailed loudly and bitterly. Now, if we saw someone doing that out here on Broad Street or Grind Street, we'd probably call the police and say, we've got somebody out here that's a little mentally unstable right now. Let's send somebody here to try to help them. They wouldn't have so much done that then with Mordecai, because that's the way people express their grief. If you've been in different cultures, and I know many of you have, different cultures express their grief differently. So Mordecai is expressing grief in the way that people would have expressed it at that time. Then verse 4, Then Esther's maidens and her eunuchs came and told her 
And the queen writhed in great anguish, and she sent garments to clothe Mordecai, that he might remove his sackcloth from him, but he did not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hadrach from the king's eunuchs, whom the king had appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Esther apparently, at this point, doesn't know why Mordecai is grieving so badly. Everybody else does. Everybody in the whole city does. Now, we get a clue from verse 11 that the reason why Esther might not have known why everything was going on was is she had been kind of in seclusion for a month. The king hadn't sent for her for a month. She was in her quarters, her apartment with her people, with her maids and her servants, and she hadn't gotten out to see what was happening. But when she, So her concern now is not so much for the Jews at this point. Her concern is for Uncle Mordecai. I hear, I hear he's wailing terribly. Something really bad has happened to him, so she sends a message. Find out what happened to Mordecai. Give him some clothes. The reason she probably wanted him to have clothes is he can't approach the palace looking like he's looking there. So she wants him to, to clean up, get control of himself, and come in and let her know what's happening, or at least come close to, to coming in and letting her know what has gone on. Why is he so grieved? Mordecai, though, is incontrollable. He won't take the clothes. When he's expressing grief, he's really expressing grief. Now, some people express grief differently, even biblically sometimes. And we need to let people express grief in the way that they're wired to express it. Some people hold everything in. And because of our culture, when somebody holds everything in and they don't grieve at all in an, in an open way, we think, that's messed up. That, that person right there, they must be spiritually mature. Because I, I've never seen a, a tear shed from them. Not even when their mama died or their wife died or their child died. I never saw them cry one bit. Well, I can guarantee you if they have any soul at all, they were grieving deeply inside. They just don't happen to express it that particular way. There are other people that may just weep and weep and weep, and you say, well, what a weak person. No, they're not. They actually may be two different expressions of the same grief. The person who's weeping and weeping, that just may be the same expression of the grief that that other person didn't, didn't express anything. It has nothing to do with one's level of spiritual maturity. It has nothing to do with it at all. In our culture, typically, it's uh, okay for females to weep. It's not okay for males to weep. You know, I guess boys are told that from the time they're little bitty. You know, big boys don't cry. Big boys don't cry. Big boys don't cry. I don't know if that's a healthy thing to tell little boys that big boys don't cry or not. I don't know. But I'm just saying we can't say anything about a person's level of spiritual growth by their external expression. Of grief. Mordecai's incontrollable. He doesn't want the clothes. He doesn't want to take a bath. He is incontrollable. So at this point, she sends her chief eunuch out to find out exactly what's going on. When he finds out, he reports back, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact amount of the money that, of Haman, that Haman had promised to pay the king's treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict which had issued which had been issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show Esther and inform her in order to go into her, or and order her to go into the king to implore his favor and to plead for him for her people. Some translations are a little soft in verse 8. Some translations may say to urge her. I just wanted to urge her, to really encourage her to go into the king. That's not what Mordecai is expressing here. 
this is something really, really strong to his niece. You go in and you do something about this. And Hatak came back and related Mordecai's words to Esther. Then Esther spoke to Hatak and ordered him to reply to Mordecai. Now, verse 11 is the reply. All of us are going to come to these crossroads at various times in our life. I think some people come to many crossroads. Others of us maybe may come to one or two over the course of our life. I'm talking about the really, really super big ones. We all come to crossroads every day. And our spiritual life is based upon the yeses or the noes that we make on these small things every day. But this is not such a small thing for us. This is a big crossroads. And I can see Esther right now. Esther's comfortable. She's not hurting. She's eating everything she wants to eat. She's living in a beautiful place. Her life is good. No problems for Esther. She's got servants. She holds a very high position. She came from nowhere. Now, all of a sudden, her world is rocked, and she didn't ask for it. It's not like she was going out there looking for something that she could do to be a hero. She didn't want it. She liked the life that she had, but that was not the choice that she was given. She didn't have a, she didn't have a choice to, to, to decide, well, I don't want to. I don't want to be this. I mean, I didn't want to face this this day, rather. She's going to face it whether she likes it or not. The choice is whether she's going to say yes or no to the opportunity. You see the difference? She has no choice in the situation that's come up. That was not her doing at all. She will have a choice in how she deals with the situation. So many things come up in our life that we did not personally bring into our life. We didn't have a choice. We didn't have a choice of whether or not the boss decided to fire us. At least, I'm assuming, assuming everything is going well. I should say, we didn't have a choice in whether or not the boss decided to lay us off. That would be a better way to put it. We didn't have a choice as to whether or not our wife got cancer. But that's the reality. Now, what are you going to do? You sat down at the doctor's office. He called you both in. You looked at the x-rays with him. He gave you the information. Now, what are you going to do? You can't run away from it. You can't act like it doesn't exist. You can't do the ostrich kind of method of problem solving and just stick your head in the sand and act like, you know, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. Well, it's still a reality. This is still a reality for Esther. Now, Esther does what a lot of people do. As soon as she comes to this crossroads, she's going to try to think of everything she can think of as to why you need to get somebody else to do this. I'm not the right person for you. I'm not up to it. You can't just punt and say, get somebody else. Look at verse 11. This is her excuse. Now, some people say it's a good excuse. Others would say maybe not. I don't think Mordecai thinks it's that good. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that for any man or woman who comes to the king in the inner court who is not summoned, he has but one law, that he be put to death unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter so that he may live. And I've not been summoned to come to the king for these 30 days. Maybe verse 11 gives us a hint as to why she might have been without the information about this law. She's been sequestered. The fact that she hadn't been there for 30 days doesn't necessarily mean that she's out of favor with Xerxes. Xerxes, I'm sure, had a whole, they were actually a stable of, of concubines. He had a whole group of them. He probably had other wives as well, although she's the queen. Xerxes really didn't need Esther to be there every day. He was one of those kind of male chauvinist kings, I'm sure, like all kings in the ancient world were. He didn't need her. So just because she hadn't been there in 30 days doesn't mean she's probably out of favor. But she's right with regard to this law. 
but she's not right with regard to something else. Mordecai's going to point it out. In fact, he'll say, hey, listen, honey, yeah, you go talk to the king, you may be killed. True. But if you don't talk to the king, you're going to be killed. Either way, you're dead unless you can go talk to him and get him to change his mind. And when presented, when presented with that little bit of data, this is, she's going to have a little different view. But verse 11 is an excuse, and most of us have that kind of thing when we come up to a situation that we don't feel adequate for. I've got to tell you something. None of us are adequate for anything that God puts in front of us without God. If we're by ourselves, none of us are adequate at all for any of it. You're not adequate to preach. We're not adequate to, to teach in a Sunday school. We have no adequacy at all if it wasn't for God empowering us to do His will. So, yeah, the fact that she's not adequate, the fact that we're not adequate, that's irrelevant. God put that situation there, so He is implying, yes, you are adequate if you take me along with you. If God is for us, who can be against us? Paul in Romans, but it's one of the overlays of the message of the book of Esther. If God's with her, nobody can be against her. So verse 12, they related. Now they is interesting because it's switched from this one individual, Hatak, to a group of people. The idea of Esther and this communication with Mordecai, it's not a secret. It's hard enough to keep it a secret if there's just one person, but there are a lot of people apparently involved. Don't miss little words like that. Verse 13, then Mordecai told them to apply to Esther. Do not imagine that you and the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. You know what he's saying to them? Listen, you think you've kept this Jewishness a secret? No, that's going to come out. And you're not going to escape the Kushite king. And then my favorite verse, at least certainly in the book of Esther, one of my favorite verses in all of the Old Testament. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. And you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not obtained royalty for such a time as this. Two things there. The first is we're we're dealing with the providence of God. If Esther says that she'll help, great. If Esther says that she won't help, I want you to notice, as per our introduction, God's plan is going to go on, with or without Esther. God's plan is going to go on, with or without any one of us. We have to count ourselves privileged to serve. It's not a burden to serve the Lord. It's a privilege, and we only go around once. God's plan is going to be fulfilled whether we participate or not. I hope we all realize that. And that's what he's telling Esther. If you remain silent, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. I would love to see Mordecai phrase this just a little differently so that we could assume that he's saying this from a theological perspective and not just the perspective of patriotism. But I think... I think you have to sneak a little bit of providence in the back door here in Mordecai's thinking. Even though he doesn't say it, I think there's a little bit that's sneaking in the back door. You don't do it. It's going to get done, Esther. But it's going to happen another way. I wish he would have said, God's going to affect it another way. God has a plan. He's going to deliver us in another way if you don't do it. Well, this is such an inspiring passage to me. It's a motivating passage. 
it's an important passage to each one of us. Sometimes we think, oh, golly, this is, the, this is the opportunity that God gave me. Why couldn't he give me that opportunity? Why is it this way? And we act like service to the Lord is some sort of drudgery. As long as we think that way, then whatever service we do end up performing with the attitude that it's drudgery, it's not going to count because it is. The Lord says, I'm, I'm going to send you to Syria to be a missionary. Oh, man. Syria. Syria? My buddy just got, got to go to Australia. Syria? Are you kidding me? Syria? Oh, man. Okay, there's your Esther moment. There's your yes or no moment. Man, I don't like the heat. Can, can we send somebody else? Hey, Billy Bob, he loves the heat. Let's send Billy Bob there. I'm going to go to Australia. There's a ministry that I really, really, really looking forward to. Won't say the name of the country, but it's in Eastern Europe, and it's not Ukraine. So those of you who know where I've been, you'll be able to figure it out, but nobody else will. I was really looking forward to that ministry because I thought, you know, where it came, I'm going to get to speak in a civilized place, you know, where they have like indoor toilets that can be used, you know, things like that, where it's not 105 degrees and no air conditioning. You know, this is going to be really a neat, neat deal. And in fact, if I was really honest with myself, I probably pushed it a little too much. Well, I thought, this, this would be kind of cool. And so I pushed it to this particular country. It's a beautiful place. Actually, quite surprising. But you know, when I got there, the first time I, when I went in to speak, I found out that they didn't, they didn't realize I spoke English. They thought since my name was Bumgarner that I spoke German. They just assumed. And you know what happens when you just assume. So I'm sitting there fixing to do a talk on Ascension Day, and they said, well, we've rounded up an interpreter for you. So we're going to look for Go see the high school English teacher. We see an interpreter. Well, this is this is person who knows more English than anybody we can find. Now that, that's other than the person that's speaking. But she knew she was about halfway, not even halfway, just a portion through my talk when my interpreter broke down crying. And I'm thinking, this is not cool. So I, I whispered to her, she was a dear, sweet, sweet girl. She was doing the best she could. And I was speaking slowly. So it wasn't speaking fast. I knew, I knew I was trying to cut a slack. And I was speaking very, very simply, too. I was trying to choose my terms that would be easy to interpret. But poor girl, she just broke down crying. And I stopped, and I said, I said, listen, it's okay. It's okay. Let's just make it through. I'll keep it real, real simple. You need just a second. You know, we got a whole group. There's quite a few people out there. And a few hundred people. And it's very, very beautiful. And so she finally got control of herself. We made another couple sentences. And I realized this wasn't going to work. So I had to wrap it up and stop. And I thought, well, that's okay. I'll have another opportunity at another time. They'll be able to round up an English interpreter for me. Surely they knew I was coming for several months, so that hopefully they would get something done. Never happened. At every turn, there were roadblocks put up to me speaking in this place. After that morning, there was a, a pastor from the Methodist Church in town, really huge, beautiful Methodist Church. And he came up and, and asked the person that had called me over there, said, listen, I understand you canceled his event for this afternoon because they don't have a church and all that. And I said, yeah, yeah, we have nothing for you. We have nothing for you. And I'm thinking, how did I get out of here? Really, I was thinking, where's the geography? You know, what train could I take to get to this particular city? 
And your second book says, would you, would you like to have speak at our church today? We'd love to have you. And I have somebody there that's an interpreter. And I'm saying, hell yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to. You know, I got nothing to do with that. I'd be happy. You know how that is. I'd be happy to do that. Then the guy says, no, no, no. No, I don't think so. They didn't have anything for me to do, but he, he thwarted back. You know, wouldn't let me go on to the next district. It got worse from there. And finally, I limped out of that city and out of that country. I mean, I felt wounded because it, it realized, I realized that this wasn't something that I was supposed to do, even though it was pretty neat country. But it wasn't where I was supposed to be. On, on the other hand, I've been to some places, and I've told you, I'm not really complaining, I'm just reporting it. I don't particularly care for the heat, I don't care for the humidity. You may ask why, why do I live in Houston, but there are places that are actually hotter and more humid than here. And I've been there where there have been 900 pastors that hang on every single word. I'm just sweating profusely all the way through, even through my feet, drinking water like crazy. I gave a lecture to them one time in this one particular location. The, the people there were two-thirds Pentecost, the Pentecostal folks. Two-thirds of them were Pentecostal. I had been assigned to teach on pneumatology, which is the study of the Holy Spirit. And one of my topics was the baptism of the Holy Spirit in tongues. I had prayed for that intensely for months before I went. And here I was just completely drenched with sweat. I was dehydrated. I was standing in front of all these people, hanging on every word. I gave that sermon in the most loving, kind way I could do it, and they applauded me after that. And I was walking out thinking, you know, I am just spent. But I felt like I did back when I was playing football in high school. It was that same kind of rush. Yeah. You know, we, we just, we just got the touchdown pass. just went. Totally different feeling because I was where God wanted me to be at that particular moment. It wasn't a comfortable place. It was where God wanted me to be. Now, Esther is faced with an uncomfortable choice. We all are from time to time. And if we choose not to go someplace just because it's uncomfortable, you may be missing out on a wonderful opportunity. Esther might have missed out on a wonderful opportunity. Well, Mordecai is going to demonstrate that to her. And he knows whether or not you have attained royalty for such a time as this. And so think about it for a minute. Sweet meat. Think about it for just a minute. Do you think God put you here in this position of incredible privilege just so you could live a comfortable life? Or do you think there's a greater meaning and purpose to your life than just eating all you want to eat? living in the palace and calling yourself the queen of the kingdom. Is there something more? And for Esther, there was. Then Esther told them to apply to Mordecai. Oh, I love this. Go assemble all the Jews who are found in Jerusalem, fast for me, and do, we do, do not eat or drink for three days or night, night or day, and I and my maids will also fast in the same way. Now, what she's saying is she still doesn't say prayer. This is as close as the book of Esther gets to prayer. And we are inserting that in here, but I'm hopeful that that's what this was indicative of. And thus I will go into the king, which is not according to the law, and if I fail in such thing. So Mordecai went away and did just as Esther had commanded him. The, the text started with Mordecai commanding Esther. Let's end with Esther commanding Mordecai. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 4 says, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked, for the day of trouble. The Lord providentially allowed this situation to come about. 
even the wicked from the day of destruction. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9. A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. In that one verse, you have the free will of man and the sovereignty of God in one text. I don't know what God has for you, but I know he's got something because he's got something for all of us. And all of us have to make a choice or a series of choices over the course of our lives. You've already made one of them. The biggest choice you could ever make was, what do I think of Jesus Christ? So all of us have made that choice. All of us have other opportunities that are ours from time to time. I don't know what yours are going to be. Heck, I don't know what mine are going to be in the coming year, months, or years, or even weeks. But I do know that there are no accidents in the crossroads that we come to. We can't get to the crossroads and say, no, 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 this, this isn't mine. This must be somebody else's. I don't want to make that decision. To not make the decision is not one of the choices. We all are given opportunities. It's my hope that we will make the best use of the time that we have. There's a series of films that I really love. It's called The Lord of the Rings. In The Lord of the Rings, there are many, many characters that are outstanding. Of course, Frodo is the hero. And Frodo has been given a destiny. And Frodo has choices to make along the way whether or not he is going to fulfill that destiny. Frodo didn't want to be in the position that he was in. He really wanted nothing to do with it. He had a great life in the Shire already. He read and he smoked his pipe and he ate and he drank his ale and he was a very happy person before he was ever placed at this crossroads. There's another little fellow that I love so much in the Lord of the Rings. His name is Sam. And Sam is Frodo's brother. And Sam has also been given a destiny. It's different from Frodo. It comes alongside it, but it's different from Frodo. And I want to show you a short little clip to end our time together tonight that I think perfectly illustrates what's going on in the book of Esther.
promise you to go. I promise. Don't you leave him some way, Kelsey. And I don't mean to. I don't mean to. Is what are you going to do with the time that you